Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So this year, we're beginning at the end, which is really just the beginning. And my experience has been that Christians are either really into the book of Revelation or you're really not. Like it's your favorite book of the Bible or your least favorite book of the Bible. You have really strong opinions about the content and what it means, or you really have no opinions at all. I don't know which camp you find yourself in. Maybe you're fascinated by the book, or maybe you find it confusing or intimidating or even a little scary. Maybe for you, venturing into the book of Revelation is a bit like joining Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow, who are walking through the forest and begin to hear sounds around them. And the Scarecrow wonders if there are animals out there that like to eat things like maybe straw. And the tin man very helpfully says, yeah, there's probably lions and tigers and bears. And so the group begins to anxiously repeat lions and tigers and bears. And Dorothy throws in for dramatic effect, oh my, right? And before you know it, the group is, is skipping through the forest, chanting lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And I wonder if for you, this is how you feel about the book of Revelation, where we will encounter dragons and beasts and snakes. Oh my, right? This is sort of how we think about the book. It's mysterious and and maybe a bit scary. The truth is, in almost two decades of Christian ministry, I've yet to preach or teach through the entire book. Probably for good reason. In my humanity, I'm still not sure this is a good idea. But in my spirit, I sense that this is the right book. It's the right time. It's for us. And I want us to walk away seeing the beauty of this book and believing that it is for us and that it has a relevant and encouraging and challenging message for all of us. It is, after all, God's inspired word. It's not just a part of it, but it's an important part. It tells the end of the story. The book itself begins with a great word of encouragement we've just read, but it's important, so I want to read it again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. You know, anything that God explicitly says, you'll be blessed if you do it. It's worthy of our attention. Amen? I think we have to approach this book with a lot of humility. Here's here's the truth. There are a lot of different perspectives on the book of Revelation. Maybe that's why you avoid it. Maybe that's why you're intimidated. You sense the controversy around different approaches to it. And I hope this morning to set the stage. I hope to give you an idea of what our approach is going to be. And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Some of you are really going to like our approach to the book of Revelation. Some of you are going to be frustrated by it. Because as you're going to find out, we're going to take sort of what I would say is a middle-of-the-road perspective. We're going to present some different theories, some different possibilities that people have discussed. But we're going to really hold up the things that are clear. And we're going to hold loosely the things that are less clear. 
I hope that all of us will be able to appreciate that. I hope that even if there's a week where you walk away and you say, you know, I just, I don't share the same perspective on the rapture or the millennium that Aaron has, you can still say that we both believe that it's God's inspired word and that there is enough clear truth in there, that it is worthy of our study and our attention, that we'll be able to disagree on some of those lesser important things, and we'll be able to strengthen our understanding and our appreciation of the more important things. I hope that we will not lose sight of the forest because of the trees, that if there are particular aspects of the book of Revelation which trip you up, which cause you to become overly focused, that you will be able to step back and to see the beauty of this vision to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, to see the beauty of his redemption and his plan coming together, to see the beauty of his eternal kingdom that we are headed into, that we'll be able to see the value here. And so this morning we're going to spend most of our time setting us up for the next 13 weeks. We're not going to get into the text very much. This is probably, it was pointed out to me earlier, the shortest preaching passage that I've ever taken. I'm I'm known for picking off big pieces of text. Uh, But this morning, I want us to take some time to look at the background, to look at the context of the book, to introduce some of the key themes and ideas that we're going to unpack throughout the rest of the series. So I'm going to say a little bit about a lot of things this morning. Just know that that is all set up to carry us through the rest of our study. So while we can't be certain, I lean toward the arguments in favor of this letter being written by John the Apostle, that is, the disciple of Jesus, the same man that wrote what is in our Bible, the fourth gospel, and that he wrote it in the 90s AD near the end of his life. Now, important point of background is understanding what kind of literature we are talking about here. What is the genre? This is the first big mistake that one can make in reading, interpreting, understanding, and applying the book of Revelation, is to fail to take into account what kind of writing it is and therefore its purpose or intent. We all understand this intuitively. We know that there's a difference between an email and a biography or between a meme and a legal letter. There are different kinds of communication. The intent is different. We have to understand what kind of writing we're dealing with in order to interpret it correctly. So the book of Revelation It's really three types of literature kind of in overlapping layers. First, it is a letter. That is to say that the entire book of Revelation is a letter. We're often familiar with the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. In fact, that's the safe sermon series that most smart pastors do is just on the letters to the churches, right? But really, when you look at the language, the entire book is a letter. It begins and ends like a typical Greco-Roman letter style-wise of this time. The entire thing is a vision that a specific person, John, is sharing with specific people, these churches in these cities. It was a letter that was designed to be encyclical, like many of the other New Testament letters, meaning it was passed around from church to church. It's not to just one church like Kirk of the Hills, but it would be like writing to the churches in Tulsa, and we would pass around this letter to the various churches to be read aloud and preached to the people. It was written, though, to seven churches in ancient Asia Minor, which is currently Turkey. However, I also think that the number seven is important here, and the number seven is symbolic of completeness in the book of Revelation. And so I think that in writing to these seven churches in a way that John is saying he's writing to all the churches. This letter is for all of God's people in all times and all places. And so we're going to talk about that more as we move 
forward. So John was writing at a time when the churches were facing intense persecution under a tyrannical leader, most likely Domitian, who had reinstituted Caesar worship. He said, people must treat me like God. They must declare that Caesar is Lord. Now, they didn't care what other religion you practiced as long as you said that. But this presents a problem for Christians because, of course, there is only one Lord, and that is Jesus. And so, most likely, John has defied this. He would not say that Caesar is Lord. And so he's been banished to an island called Patmos where certain criminals and enemies of the state were isolated. It's from there that he pens this letter and he says, I saw this vision and he shares it and all of it is for the church. It is a letter, but it's also secondly prophecy. Five times John or the angel calls the work the prophecy. In verse one, he writes, the purpose of revelation is to show his servants what must soon take place. The end of the letter, he says, and I sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So prophecy can have two applications. Prophecy can be foretelling, that is foretelling the future, things that will happen. And prophecy can also be forthtelling, that is simply to proclaim the truth of God. It can be either one. And I think we see both aspects of prophecy in the book of Revelation. It's just helpful to know that prophecy is not just talking about the future, but it is proclaiming God's message for today. The role of a prophet is to hear and to see things that others don't, whether current or future, and to proclaim them to God's people. And so to call Revelation prophecy means that God is revealing something that requires a response of the hearers. So it's prophecy, but the third layer is that it is apocalypse. It's apocalypse. The first word in the original manuscript of the book is apocalypsis. This word in most English versions is translated the revelation. This word simply means unveiling or uncovering. It refers to disclosure, to reveal, to bring to light, to take the lid off, to unwrap the present and see what is inside. It is a a revealing. All of it is apocalypse. It is a revelation from God. And so 40 times John says, I saw. 32 times he says, I heard. This is what this book, this letter is designed to do. It is exhorting us to have ears to hear and to have eyes to see. John is saying, I'm writing to you a vision of what I saw, and I'm trying desperately to put it into words. And so I'm going to use all these different images and symbols to try to tell you the beauty and the intricacies of this vision that I have seen. And I want you to see it. I want you to have eyes to see and ears to hear. I want you to experience it. And so while we've given you charts, and it's very common in approaching Revelation to try to analyze it and lay it out in different ways, and that can be helpful, we don't just want your head to experience this, but we want you to see, we want you to hear, we want you to experience this revelation, this apocalypse like a piece of art, like like a a well-written song, like a beautiful painting, because I'm going to tell you something that words alone cannot express. It's sort of like the Grand Canyon. You can't put it into words. I mean, guys, it's a really, 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 really big hole in the ground. It's awesome. Words don't do it justice. You have to experience it. 
And so John is trying to put into words this amazingly beautiful vision that he had. And so I want you just to think about that, that we would ask that the Holy Spirit would bring alive our imagination, to read it much like we are supposed to read the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and to take in the different symbols and to not get lost so much in the details that we don't see the beauty of what we are looking at. I want you to see, I want you to hear And so in this way, Revelation is not totally unique. There are other letters. It actually ends up being the longest letter in the New Testament. There are other prophetic books in the Bible, but it's the only book in the Bible that is a letter which is prophetic and apocalyptic. And so it's unique in that way. Now, apocalyptic literature uh, existed at this time. It was a known genre leading up to the time of John's writing, and even after it. We know in Christian and Jewish circles there are other apocalypses that were written, apocalyptic-type literature. And so we can piece together some features that are unique to this type of literature that help us to interpret the book. One is that colors and numbers have symbolic meanings. We gave you one chart at the back of your book uh, which lays out one person's take on interpreting the numbers in the book of Revelation. I tend to agree with him for the most part. That's why it ended up in your book. It's not the only way to see those things, but I think it is a helpful guide. People are often represented as animals. It's helpful to know. And historical events are often expressed as natural phenomenon. Okay? So there, there are other aspects of it, and we'll get into that as we move forward. There are many different approaches to this book, different lenses through which to view it. I want to share with you a couple of the major ones, and I'll say just a little bit about those. So four approaches to the book of Revelation. The first one is the historicist, and if I could summarize it for you nicely, the traditional folks got a longer version. I think I figured out how to say this more concisely now. The historicist sees most of, if not all, of the events in the book of Revelation having happened in the past. A historical perspective. Some of you are like, I never even knew that was an option. Well, it is an option. There are people who see it that way, okay? Some, or it just, it largely focuses on the book as being fulfilled in the past. The futurist, no surprise, is the opposite and believes that most of, if not all the events, are yet to happen in the future, okay? And there are different versions of that one that we'll unpack. The idealist says past, future. Let's not focus on the timeline. I think that what's happening here is that these events are timeless in a way. And maybe, kind of how I see it, maybe they're fulfilled in different ways in different time periods. Maybe there's multiple fulfillment of some of the prophetic material as there was even in the Old Testament prophetic material, often a more immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment as well. Maybe there's some both and happening here. The idealist tends to read it less literally than the historical or the future perspective and sees it as being more symbolic. Finally, the fourth option is what might be called convergence or an eclectic approach, and that is piecing together or seeing merits in various approaches and having different aspects of those. Now, I'm going to go ahead and put my cards on the table because you're going to realize this pretty quickly. My personal perspective is I lean more towards an idealistic view. Okay? That's probably not surprising to a lot of you all. Um, and so we'll all wrestle with this together as we move forward. But I tend to believe that the book of Revelation was written in such a way that every generation would see it and go, oh, that right there, that's happening to us. That's right now. And be convinced of it. 
and live with a sense of urgency. I think that it's written that way on purpose, not to trick us, but because that's the way God intended it, that we would all see it and we would, we would see different aspects of it and think, oh man, that, is that now? So I took a, a class in undergrad at John Brown University on, on just the book of Revelation. And we studied four major views, roughly those. I've used different terminology there. And the, the funny part about it, I don't know if it's funny, but amusing to me is that I left the class less sure than ever because we basically just studied all the different approaches and then the professor said, okay, you guys, you know, figure out. What do you think? Uh, and so that's probably colored my experience where I've sort of pieced together, where I lean more towards an idealist, but I see some merit in the other approaches as well. A few other things that I think are important to know as we go into the book. Okay, Revelation is deeply rooted in the language of the Old Testament. Not surprising. Uh, as well as the typologies of the Old Testament. Parts of it read like the wisdom literature. It uses poetic, beautiful color language, a colorful language and imagery. And John is telling us that this future glory is beyond words. It cannot be put into words alone. Revelation is also a series of windows. It's not linear. It's cyclical. So as you're going through, you're going to see, okay, John says, I looked into this window and I saw this. And then later he's going to say, okay, I looked into this window and I saw this. And you're going to go, wait, didn't, that sounds a lot like what happened before. Yep. That's what I think is happening. I think he's using different images. He's telling us the same thing over and over again, right? You have, you have bowls and you have seals and you have trumpets and there's seven of all of them. And I think it's, it's the cyclical nature. Because if you think it's totally linear and chronological, you're going to get confused because there's stuff that happens. You're going to go, wait, this happened after that? Not necessarily. Okay? So it's helpful to understand the book is not linear. Don't let that frustrate you. Eugene Peterson argues there's nothing in Revelation that hasn't already been said before in the previous 65 books of the Bible. No new subject or truth, really, just new ways of seeing the same things with vivid images designed to revive the imagination. And I think that's true, really. There's, there's no brand new message in Revelation, but it brings these truths and these themes into light in a unique way. They're not unique to Revelation, but they are uniquely illustrated. So, Keeping in mind these things, I want to introduce this morning a couple of big idea themes that we see in the book, and then we're going to see cycled through the rest of our study together. The first one is that God reigns. God reigns. Every page of Scripture saturated with this message, but again, it's one of those truths that's so important that we need to hear it over and over again. I, I don't know about you, but I don't mind hearing that every day. I don't mind being reminded that God is king, that he is the one on the throne, that no matter what we look out and see in the world, no matter how much a mess our lives appear to be, God is the king. He reigns on the throne. And many times I'll hear people say something to this effect. They'll say, the book of Revelation shows us that in the end, God wins. You heard this before? Yes? And I want to nuance that a little bit. That is true, but I think that that might suggest that there's sort of this battle going on and we're not really sure like who's going to win. And then in the end, oh, we find out, oh, God finally came out on top. But that's not at all the story of the Bible. No, the Bible, the Bible tells us that he is the one who was and who is and who is to come. 
And so it's not that he will one day reign or that he will win. It's that he has already won. He is winning. And he will finally and fully reveal to us and we will experience the fullness of his reign in the world. And so it is God reigns. He is the king. He always has been. Revelation just goes out of its way to point out the fact that we will fully experience his reign and all of the benefits of that. Guys, that's good news this morning. I don't know what you're thinking. The second theme is judgment and mercy. This is the sobering, one of the many sobering messages of Revelation. The reality that there are two paths in life. There are not many paths. There are not many paths that lead to one place. There are two paths. That is what Scripture tells us. There are two paths, and they don't lead to the same place. They lead to very different places. And the one path is the broad path. And it's broad because it's the natural trajectory of the human heart. We will experience the judgment of God apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. This is the path that in the end will lead us to stand before God. And if we stand before God based on our own merits and we say, well, I hope I did more good than bad, which isn't even enough, by the way, but I think that we would all fail at. No, the reality is that the, the test is you have to be perfect. If you break one law, you've broken the whole law. If you sin at all, you are not perfect. You are not holy. Therefore, apart from grace, you will experience God's judgment. This is one path. You stand before God based on your own merits. And if you do that, you will stand condemned, rightly. The other path is the narrow path. It is the narrow path of grace and the path of mercy. And that is the path wherein you are in Christ. You have placed your faith in Christ alone, through his grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And at the end of your life, you will stand before the same judgment of God. And in that scenario, you will not stand on your own, but Jesus will say, that one is with me, and that will be enough. That will be enough. That one is with me, is in Christ, and we will rightly receive the grace of God, we will be participants in his mercy, which means we will not get what we deserve. And the book of Revelation shows both of those themes very strongly. You cannot avoid it. There is mercy and there is judgment. The next big theme is that Jesus returns. Jesus returns tells us that history is linear. History as we know it will come to an end. There was a definite beginning, there is a definite end, and then there is more than meets the eye. There is life past that. This is not what all worldviews teach. Some teach that history is cyclical. It just sort of repeats itself. It's never ending. The Christian worldview is that there is a beginning, there's an end, and then there's a life after that. And so the end of history as we know it, Jesus will come back. Now I mentioned that there are things that are important that we all agree upon. There are things that we hold more loosely. In our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the return of Christ is one of our seven essentials. We only have seven things that you must agree upon if you want to be a member of 
one of our churches, and one of them is this. Jesus Christ will come again to the earth personally, visibly, and bodily. He's actually coming back. It's not just a spiritual reality. Just as he came before miraculously through the womb of Mary, so one day the clouds will part and he's coming back. He's coming back to wrap this whole thing up. Again, a lot of details that we'll talk about as we go through the book of what what that could mean, but we must agree that he is coming. In John 22, it says, I am coming to make everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. No cap, Cooper. It's going to (laughs) happen. There's hope of something better. That is the great longing of every human heart. And this book gives us a beautiful picture of Jesus and his lordship. We're longing for a new king, aren't we? We're longing for a new king. Sorry, for those of you who missed that, if you were here last week, Cooper walked us through some great terminology that teenagers use, and I didn't know any of it, and that was just one of those. So I just, I I looked and I didn't catch eyes with one of our high school students, even though they're here, and I just pointed that at Cooper. So sorry, that was awkward. It's just better to acknowledge that, you know, when things are awkward. Jesus is coming back, and so the final theme is that we must live ready. We must live ready. One of the questions the book of Revelation doesn't answer for us, in my opinion, and it's a big one, is the question, when? That's the natural question. When are you going to come back, Jesus? Will you tell us? And there are those who disagree with me. There are those who who believe that baked into the DNA of Revelation, there's like a secret code that certain people are going to figure out, and they're going to find out when Jesus is coming back. But Jesus was pretty clear that you don't know. So there's a lot I don't know, but I do know that you don't know, right? It's an elusive question. But here's the bottom line. We are living in the last days. But here's the follow-up question that how do you define last days? Well, I believe that Scripture unpacks the last days as beginning with the ascension of Jesus and ending at the return of Jesus. So the follow-up question is, are we in the beginning of the last days or the middle of the last days or the end of the last days? That's the real question. And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Now, I believe that Jesus could return tomorrow. I do. I mean, I don't, I don't personally see anything left that needs to happen before he comes back. Some do. I think he could return tomorrow. Now, other people are more convinced that, like, he is coming. Like, it'll be in my lifetime. I'm not. I think it could be, but I think it could be a while still. We don't know. And again, I think the book is written that way on purpose. If you feel an urgency, if, you're, if when you read the book of Revelation, you think, man, we are living in the last days. He is coming soon. I think that's what it's supposed to do to you. But know also that it did that to believers in the 300s, and it did that to believers in the Middle Ages. They read it too, and they said, it's now. He's coming back before I die. I promise you. I think God did that on purpose. Not because he's trying to trick us, because that's the point of the book, is we don't know, and it could be any day now, right? Because when the people in the early, early church, when they read it, it said, the time is soon. And it meant that. The time is soon. They were living in the last days. We don't know. We must live, though, with an urgency that it could be 
today. I'd like to read a quote from one of the many commentaries I'm reading on this book. It's by a guy named Daryl Johnson. And he says this, Revelation is not a crystal ball revealing esoteric secrets that enable one to escape the harsh realities of life on earth, but a down-to-earth manual on how to be a disciple of Jesus facing the harsh realities of life on earth. I share that because I think that this is helpful in capturing our posture toward this book, because we want to see that this book is applicable, that it helps all of us to be faithful to the finish, to have that urgency, to have that readiness. It's a call to radical discipleship. It crystallizes what it means to follow Jesus, to overcome our fears, and to free us for a radical faith. I hope that we'll see this book is for us. It's not to scare you. It's not to confuse you. No, it's to bless you. It's to encourage you. And I hope that we will find that blessing. You know, when I was younger, I used to think, hey, I'm, I'm really excited for the return of Jesus. That sounds really awesome, but I'm not ready yet. You remember feeling that way when you were younger? You're like, there's life experiences. I just, I'm not ready for Jesus to come back. I can just remember feeling that way when I was a teenager, and I think I was 100% legit. I think now, I guess I'm getting older, more mature. I don't know what the terminology would be, but my perspective has certainly changed. Maybe it's just life gets harder the, the further you move along in different ways. And my posture now is I'm ready. I'm ready. Maranatha, come, come, Lord Jesus. Stick a fork in this. Like, let's go. Let's go. And I hope that wherever it lands for you, that as we study Revelation, we'll be excited about what's ahead. And yet, at the same time, the danger of studying the book of Revelation and pointing out the urgency of the return of Christ is that it might not be tomorrow. And we still have time left. We don't know what day is our last day. But as long as today is today and we have breath in our lungs, we want to be faithful to the finish. And I hope this book will help us not to check out because Jesus is coming back and he's going to fix it all, but to all the more go all in for the kingdom. To pray with urgency, to heed the call for kingdom workers. To lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters for the sake of the gospel. The kingdom is here, friends, but the kingdom is coming. The king is here, but the king is coming. And we live in that tension. And he calls us not to figure out all the details, certainly not to figure out when he's going to come back, but to live every day with the urgency that he could come back today. And he's given us today. So as he has been faithful to us, may he make us by his spirit faithful to the end, whether that's the end of our life or whether that is his return. He's coming and he reigns and whatever it means, it's going to be amazing. Amazing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this book. More than that, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word which is designed to encourage us, to bless us, to equip us, to fill us, to help us. So God, help us to see the book of Revelation as that. Help us to overcome our fears and our uncertainties and help us to receive your word. Help us to hold strongly to those big truths and to hold loosely to the rest of those details, entrusting them into your hands. God, help us to see your beauty and your power and your grace in the finish to the story of life as we know it. 
God, fill us and equip us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.